So I think if you look at some of the research data on overreaching and overtraining, you know, our biomarker is useful and, and it's been a, a mixed bag. But I will say this too, I have a real problem with the current state of the overreaching literature or and what some have actually called overtraining, which I'm sorry, if you bring somebody to the gym for four weeks and you just crank up the volume, that's not necessarily overtraining. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Happy belated New Year 2024. To kick things off in the new year, we are celebrating hitting the 1 million downloads milestone by sharing highlights from the last seven years of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. In this episode, and in episode 20 to come, I'll revisit the last seven seasons of the podcast sharing the insights from all the world-class experts and coaches who've been on the show. Before we get started, we've got a lot of new and exciting things coming down the pipeline in 2024 at drbubs.com and Athlete Performance Nutrition, which is the high-performance side of my work with professional and Olympic athletes. It includes this podcast, my best-selling book, Peak, the online courses, and athlete coaching. All right, let's get the ball rolling on this highlight episode, and in this first series of clips, we'll talk foundational health. You'll hear from Dr. Javier Gonzalez, PhD, professor of nutrition and metabolism from the University of Bath, sharing his research and their work at Bath, all about breakfast and the impacts on weight loss. Then in clip number two, we'll transition over to Dr. Nicola Guess, who holds a PhD in the prevention of type two diabetes from Imperial College London, who will discuss the nuances and complexities of insulin insulin spikes, and if and when they are really a problem. Enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of your work in terms of activity levels between groups that eat breakfast and don't eat breakfast, um, can you talk about some of the work you've done with accelerometers and assessing that activity level between breakfast eaters and people who abstain from breakfast? Yeah, yeah. Well, here, herein lies one of the problems with the observational studies because, um, People who regularly consume breakfast are also more likely to lead a healthy lifestyle in, in many other ways, including physical activity. So we don't, this is one of the reasons why we don't know whether breakfast is the cause for this lower body mass in people who regularly eat breakfast, because it may be that they're more physically active and it's the physical activity that is, is driving this. So, so going to the gym, going for a run, all these things are just embedded into their routine, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're also more likely to eat, um, more fruit and vegetables, less likely to smoke, um, and a number of other things too. Um, so this um, prompted James Betts, one of my colleagues now, it was before I came to Bath actually, um, to run a, a randomized controlled trial um, to understand the effects of breakfast on energy balance. So what he did was recruited a group of lean and a group of obese um, volunteers, and they were randomly assigned for six weeks to either consume breakfast every day, um, or fast every day, um, or extend their morning fast. And, and it was quite an extreme intervention. So the fasting group couldn't consume any stimulating nutrients until midday every day. So they'd wake up in the morning, they were allowed essentially water only. Um, whereas the breakfast group um, had to consume at least 700 calories before um, 11 a.m. Um, so it was kind of a proof of principle. That is a large breakfast. Um, yep. Most people tended to eat a relatively high carbohydrate breakfast too. And, and so we're interested in, 
in the future looking at whether manipulating the type of breakfast is important. But based on this study, it seems that when people self-select a breakfast, it, it tends to be high carbohydrate. And what, what James found was that um, randomizing people to consume breakfast increased their physical activity um, across the whole day, but in particular in the morning. Um, this was more apparent in, in the lean cohort the, that he um, he studied, um, but it was it was quite a substantial amount too. So um, the the energy energy they were eating was um, at least 700 calories in the morning, and the increase in physical activity energy expenditure compared to the fasting group was about 440 calories per day, kilocalories per day. Um, wow. So that, that's quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's equivalent to, to going to the gym for for many people for about an hour or so. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, you know, when we think about breakfast, oftentimes people who are trying to lose weight, um, you know, one of the reasons they get these blood sugar swings throughout the day in terms of that typical breakfast, and they tend to be craving foods a lot throughout the day. So that's often one of the reasons why they can go to sort of a, a fasting or intermittent fasting strategy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what does the research show in terms of that blood glucose control, whether someone's abstaining from breakfast or eating breakfast? And you know, does it matter if they're actually lean or obese? Yeah, this is something I, I'm really interested in. It's, it's known as the second meal effect, um, whereby your response. So if, if we start off with, with glucose control, first of all, so whenever we eat a meal containing carbohydrates, um, our blood sugar levels or blood glucose concentrations will rise and they'll peak at about if we're healthy, then about 30 to 60 minutes. And then they'll fall back down again to pretty much baseline by around two hours. Um, and the, we need to control that, that glucose in, in, in this tight range. Um, otherwise, we get a number of complications such as cardiovascular disease and, and damage to various blood vessels. And, and ultimately, we can develop type 2 diabetes if, if blood glucose levels rise too high. Yep. Um, and what's interesting is if we consume a meal um, in the morning, let's say we have our breakfast, then our response, our glucose response to lunch, our glucose control is better than if we'd fasted in the morning. And that's known as the, the second meal effect. Um, we're not fully aware um, of the mechanisms that, that um, regulate that, um, but it could be related to um, improvements in insulin sensitivity. So that is, um, insulin is the main hormone that, that regulates our blood sugar levels. And um, if we're more insulin sensitive, then um, for the same amount of insulin, we'll get better glucose control. Essentially, our, our tissues, such as our muscle, will take up more glucose out of the bloodstream for the same amount of insulin if they're more insulin sensitive. Um, it may also relate to some, some of the liver glucose output. So the liver is constantly putting out glucose into the bloodstream. And what, this second, what might happen with the second meal effect is that we get a greater suppression of glucose output from the liver with our second meal. Yeah, you mentioned insulin there, and I think that's definitely one where, you know, obviously today with about two-thirds of the population being overweight or obese, and at least in America, some, some of the studies showing you know, up to 50% pre-diabetic or diabetic, and so this elevated insulin, can you talk a bit about its impact on fat oxidation and what that might, um, you know, hinder then for, for, for folks who are trying to lose weight? Yeah, um, so... A high insulin level is, is or concentration in the blood is is one of the earliest signs of um, insulin resistance. Um, and what's happening there is that um, the pancreas, which is the, tissue, the organ that secretes insulin, is is compensating for the 
um, decrease in insulin sensitivity. So it's secreting more insulin in order to maintain a stable blood sugar level. But the problem with that is that insulin doesn't just affect glucose uh, metabolism, it also affects um, fat metabolism and, and many other things too. Um, and what it does in, in regards to fat metabolism is it suppresses fat oxidation and it suppresses lipolysis. So that's the breakdown of fat in, in adipose or fat tissue. Um, so it's essentially stimulating the pathways of, of fat storage and suppressing the pathways of, of fat breakdown. Um, and there, there is some confusion in the, in the literature and definitely some conflict between um, human studies and non-human studies in this area. So um, there's some work by Jim Johnson um, in using rodent models um, that suggests that high insulin concentrations um, accelerate weight gain in certain models um, and that still may be acting through energy balance. So in those studies, it seems like um, the, the lower insulin level in the blood seems to be associated with a higher physical activity level or at least a higher energy expenditure in these rodents. There's then some human data um, and Kevin Hall's done a lot of great work in this area recently um, where under very tightly controlled conditions, drastically changing the carbohydrate and fat content of the diet in order to manipulate insulin concentrations um, can change, um, sorry, doesn't lead to any differences in weight loss that would be predicted by, by energy balance. So essentially, energy balance seems to be key, whereas insulin is, is important for regulating substrate metabolism and directing whether we're oxidizing fat or storing fat or, or oxidizing carbohydrate. If we're, if we're purely interested in at least long-term changes in, in body weight and fat mass, then energy balance is really key. Yeah, 100%, definitely the energy balance being so pivotal. And so I guess it begs the question for some folks who are trying to kickstart uh, weight loss or if they're, they are struggling with uh, you know, prediabetes or metabolic syndrome, um, is there a potential advantage then for whether it's an intermittent fasting eating strategy or perhaps even a low carb to start the day of, of facilitating a, a caloric reduction then throughout the day? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of intermittent fasting, um, uh, one of our, our PhD students is just writing up his thesis at the moment. And I, I won't steal his thunder, but he's got some really <laughs> interesting data <laughs> coming out there too, um, especially in relation to, to physical activity levels on days when people fast versus days when, when people are eating. Um, but if, if we focus on, on the role of breakfast here and, and that fasting in the morning, um, certainly if, if we um, skip breakfast, we don't tend to, at least within the next 24 hours, compensate with any increase in, in energy intake. Um, but we do seem to reduce our, our energy expenditure. Um, that is at least when we're, we're not really aware or conscious of what we're doing. Maybe we can do something about that, though, and, and we might want to con consider performing exercise sessions in the morning. Um, then we're fixing, essentially fixing or prescribing our energy expenditure um, because the, the, role, the way in which breakfast is regulating energy expenditure and physical activity isn't through changing the amount of exercise people are doing. It's mainly the, the spontaneous type of physical activity that we're, we're not really conscious of. So just little things like fidgeting and so on, which we could potentially offset if we're aware of that. So if you are looking to lose weight and and I think there are, there are various strategies that you can use. And it's probably a case of, of trying a few ones and seeing which, which one you, you find easiest to adhere to. Um, 
But if if fasting in the morning is one that you'd like to try, then um, just being aware that your physical activity levels might be lower and you might have a propensity to, to be a little bit uh, lazier, if you like, in the morning, for want of a, a better term. But at mm. least you know that and you can do something about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously you hit on something crucial there, which is that an adherence component of all this in terms of whether it's weight loss, better health, um, you know, you touched on it a little bit, but again, how important is that individual's preference when it comes to whether it's breakfast or the nutrition strategy that they choose to to apply? Yeah, I, I think it's critical to both uh, the exercise and, and, and diet. So clearly, it, energy balance is simple on the one hand, but it's so difficult to adhere to, in, at least in the long term. Um, so if people like to follow a particular diet, whether it's low carbohydrate, ketogenic, or higher in protein, um, higher in carbohydrate, low fat, as long as they can adhere to an energy deficit on that diet, then that's probably a, a good one for them to follow. Um, it seems, and, and um, Susan Jeb's done some great work on this, that there are actually quite minimal differences in the metabolic effects of different diets as long as weight loss is occurring. So if you take someone who um, has obesity, for example, then their metabolic health probably isn't, isn't going to be very good, or at least in the long term, their prognosis isn't, isn't going to be great. If they're losing weight almost by any means, then their metabolic health will improve. And there are actually very minor differences between the types of diets. And, and you can probably say the same about exercise too. People often ask me, well, what, what's the best type of exercise to do? And the, probably the best answer you can give to that is the one that you're going to do regularly, the one that Keep you're doing, yeah. going to adhere to. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. And um, if we continue down this road of even sort of pre-exercise breakfast versus extended overnight fasting for folks who want to do some exercise in the morning, mm -hmm. um, could you talk about some of the potential advantages then and how glycogen plays a role in, in terms of what substrates are going to be utilized for energy? Yeah. Um, so with with exercise, we're, we're going to be burning a mixture of carbohydrates and fats as a fuel. And when I'm talking about exercise now, I'm typically talking about um, running and cycling and kind of endurance type exercise. Um, and if you if you do that in the fasted state, um, then you typically see an increase in fat oxidation and a decrease in carbohydrate oxidation. And um, a recent study that um, one of my PhD students, Rob Edinburgh, has published with the help of other, other PhD students, such as, as Aaron Hengist, um, what they showed was um, when we consume breakfast prior to exercise, um, then we the carbohydrate, the increase in carbohydrate oxidation is coming from blood glucose, but also an increase in muscle glycogen utilization. And that might seem a little bit counterintuitive. Um, we sometimes think that maybe if we're, if we're eating carbohydrate, we might be able to spare our muscle glycogen stores during exercise. Um, that doesn't actually seem to be the case under most conditions. There are a few studies that have shown some muscle glycogen sparing during exercise, but that's with a lot of carbohydrate ingestion, both before and during exercise. Here we're talking about eating a, a breakfast with a very modest amount of carbohydrate. So your typical kind of oatmeal or porridge, um, six mm -hmm. grams of carbohydrate or so, and two hours before exercise. And if if we look back at some of the other literature, that, and um, Professor Roy Taylor, who's who's now up in Newcastle, he's um, he's published studies back in the past looking at muscle glycogen concentrations after eating a meal. It's quite a basic question, and 
what you find is that about an hour after eating a mixed meal containing some carbohydrate is that muscle glycogen concentrations actually go down from the fasting level before they then rise over the subsequent few hours. Interesting. What, yeah, it's, it's, it is a, a great study. And um, what we think is going on there is that um, you eat your meal, you get your big insulin spike straight away. And that's causing our muscle to switch from fat to carbohydrate metabolism. And it's happening so quickly that that's before much of the carbohydrate from the meal has actually entered the bloodstream and got to the muscle. So we've got this window where there's increased carbohydrate metabolism in the muscle, but that is not matched by carbohydrate delivery to the muscle. Um, so we get this little window where there's a decrease in muscle glycogen concentration. And if we start exercise at that time, we might not be able to spare muscle glycogen. And, and what we found in, in this recent study is that um, when we took muscle biopsies, there was quite a lot of a suggestion that um, all of the, the signaling pathways in muscle um, that are associated with low muscle glycogen, so these are pathways known as the, the AMPK pathway, that was all upregulated when breakfast was consumed prior to exercise. And it, it was a little bit paradoxical at first, but then when I remembered that study by Roy Taylor, it all, all started to make sense. I want to ask you another question around sort of the importance of the pulsatile and first insulin responses in this story of type 2 diabetes. Sure. Could you unpack that a little bit for listeners? Yes. So, so insulin secretion is is quite hard to explain because it could mean any anything. I mean, basically, you're saying the insulin that's released postprandially. Um, but what's really important, seemingly for normal physiology, is something we call the first phase insulin secretion. Um, it can basically be defined as the amount of insulin that is secreted in the first 10 minutes following a rise in blood glucose. So basically, normally, let, let's say when you eat, your pancreas, if it's healthy, is very efficient at detecting any change in blood glucose concentration. So the moment your pancreas is able to detect that your blood glucose has gone up, even 0.3 millimoles per liter, you get this really... Um, powerful insulin spike. And it's where your insulin goes up really fast, really high um, in the first 10 minutes. And that's called the first phase insulin response. Um, so often people use insulin spike in a negative sense, um, like, oh, you shouldn't eat carbs because it will cause an insulin spike. And this is a really, this is a misunderstanding of physiology, because having a, an insulin spike that goes up and then comes down very quickly um, is a very effective way of managing postprandial glucose concentrations because the moment your insulin goes up, it shuts down hepatic glucose output. So your liver no longer releases glucose, which it does in the fasting state. It also um, causes glucose to be um, taken up into the muscles very quickly and very efficiently. Um, it stops lipolysis. So if you're healthy and insulin sensitive, having a, a marked insulin peak is very important for controlling postprandial glucose um, and postprandial fat metabolism. What happens early on in type 2, we see this in prediabetes, the first phase insulin response is basically halved. So yes, you get a response, but it's not this peak that you'd see in healthy people. Um, and by late stage type 2, this differs between people, but it might be 10 years after diagnosis, there's barely a blip. So if you try to measure the first phase insulin response, you can barely see a blip. Um, and let me just reiterate the way we measure this. It's very difficult to measure, which is why we 
previously haven't known so much about it is that you can really only get a picture of how well the beta cells are working by either using um, an intravenous glucose tolerance test. So this is like an oral glucose tolerance test, but you inject the glucose into a vein um, or a hyperglycemic clamp. Um, and this, I mean, on average, they can be three, three, four hundred pounds um, in the UK per clamp. Um, all in. Um, so they're very difficult to do. They're quite time consuming um, and they're expensive, but they do tell us important things about beta cell function. Um, so that's first phase insulin. Um, and then I think you mentioned pulsatile insulin release. Yep. Um, so this actually is even less studied than the first phase insulin response. Um, and so pulsatile insulin secretion basically refers to how insulin in the healthy uh, physiological state is released in a pulsatile fashion. Um, so it looks like the pulses might be five to seven minutes apart. Um, and basically, it's just insulin going up and going down and going up and going down. Um, and this is quite normal in endocrinology. So a lot of the hypothalamic hormones do have a similar pulsatile insulin secretion. Um, but its importance is very clear in well, we know that from studies where um, researchers have infused insulin into a vein in a pulsatile fashion, and then they've infused insulin into a vein, the same concentration of insulin, but flat. So removing the, the peaks and troughs. Mm -hmm. And what those data showed is that if you infuse insulin flat, you basically cause insulin resistance, certainly in the liver. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whereas if you you infuse the same concentration in the pulsatile fashion, it reduces the insulin resistance. Um, the, the, the physiology behind how is pretty incredible, how the pancreas itself secretes insulin in this pulsatile fashion isn't fully understood. But you can even see it in isolated islet cells. So if you take out the islets and you look at them um, in vitro, you know, kind of on the bench, mm -hmm. you can see this almost intrinsic pulsatile secretion. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. Incredible. We don't know, yeah, don't don't know too much about how it goes wrong, but certainly that seems to be a, a defect early in type two. Um, and in fact, you can detect a loss of pulsatile insulin secretion in normal glycemic relatives of people with type 2 diabetes. So someone who's got totally normal glucose, but just has a mum or dad with type 2, you already see this loss in the pulsatile insulin uh, secretion. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and Nicola, where's the potential application here with technology, the use of continuous glucose monitoring systems, um, especially as a proxy for insulin output? Um, oh, what, are, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And where, where? Yeah, this is tough. I mean, I love CGMs. CGMs have really changed, certainly the way I manage a lot of my patients. Um, but unfortunately, insulin is so important, whether it's insulin or C-peptide. Um, so C-peptide is basically, it's released at the same time of it as insulin, but it's not taken up by the tissues in the same way. So C-peptide can be a useful marker for insulin secretion. Unfortunately, there are no ways yet of measuring insulin and C-peptide um, easily and outside of a lab. Um, that will change the game. If someone can figure out a way to measure insulin or C-peptide, the way we measure glucose, that will ch change the landscape. Um, I mean, I, re I really genuinely hope there are teams working on this because um, it's such an important question. Um, so in, in terms of the certainly CGM. I like CGMs because I think they demonstrate the effect of foods on, on 
blood glucose levels. Um, I think it empowers patients to see that. And I think it helps them, them manage their either pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes that way. Um, but I would like to patients to be able to do that with insulin too. Um, but maybe I think that's probably 10 years away. Yeah, that would be definitely an incredible breakthrough. And as you mentioned, I think CGMs are terrific a learning tool for patients just to, for them to really put their finger on well, what's happening in, in, in the blood in reaction to different foods. And I think for a lot of folks, it's a pretty big eye-opener to see some of these responses to things that they, you know, maybe it may have taken for granted or hadn't realized. And so definitely um, uh, a very useful tool. But if we, if we come back to this idea of food environment, which is obviously massively important, um, you mentioned the weight loss success of folks is not very good you know, regain within five years, almost across the board. All of these protocols, when we start to see this ability to get into a caloric deficit to help with weight loss, we know we can do it. We just can't help clients and patients maintain it. Um, so are we just, you know, is it, is it doom and gloom here? Are we stuck with this food environment? How can we start to shift uh, things to help folks out? Sure. I mean, so so let me just reiterate in terms of, of losing weight and weight regain. I mean, yes, the food environment is huge and we'll just come to that in just a sec. But it is important to illustrate we, we now know a lot about physiology, um, in particular ap appetite hormones. And there's clear data that when you lose weight, all of the hormones that make you want to eat increase. For sure. Um, and, and those effects seem to be maintained certainly up to a year after you lose weight. So I think it's important to let people know when they feel hungry and when they're just craving for food after they lose weight, that is, is a kind of a normal physiological response. And that's one of the reasons why it makes sustained weight loss maintenance so challenging. Um, but certainly, certainly the food environment is huge. <clears throat> and like when I talk to my colleagues about, I mean, I think the diabetes prevention program we have here is terrific. But, you know, imagine if you just attended a, an hour long session, you're really excited, you've lost some weight, um, and you walk down the high street after the session and there are seven or eight different places where food smells are wafting out, um, uh, advertising lots of cheap palatable food for, um, you know, one pound 50. You can eat your dinner. You don't need to prepare it. You know, human beings are human beings. We work long hours. We're tired. We don't have much time. Stress levels are high. Stress levels are high, sure. And we're easily tempted. Um <clears throat> And in that kind of situation, all of the education in the world, um, unfortunately, isn't going to change our um, our natural human responses to the environment around us. Um, but I, I do have some optimism, and we've we've seen the sugar tax. Um, I mean, that was kind of a no-brainer in the sense that no one needs sugar; uh, it doesn't have any nutrients. Um, it's pretty terrible for kids, especially when it's in uh, liquid uh, drinks. You know, some kids in the States are having 25% of their calories from Coke. Yeah, um, so shocking, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so like, I'm really pleased to see that. Um, and I think there is a growing public understanding that in some ways we've been duped by food manufacturers, um, you know, advertising foods as healthy, um, and, and quite cynically using health claims to market their products. I think there's growing understanding that we have to be as consumers more cynical about our foodscape. Um, but the, the real thing is, is going to be further um, political changes. I mean, so, so Darius Mozafarian um, at Tufts has some terrific ideas on this. Um, I mean, quite clearly to change food intake, um, you need point of sale either taxation or incentives. So for example, where researchers have lowered the prices of fruit and vegetables in a canteen, 
you can immediately see people start consuming more of those products. If they then increase the price of fruit and vegetables, people consume fruit, fewer of those products. So certainly pricing is going to influence food intake. Um, and I, what I would like to see, and it's a political question, um, and it's, that's not my role, but I, I think this was the kind of thing that would work, is that when you go to a food outlet, stuff like chips or fries are, let's say, $3 or $4, whereas the vegetables or the oily fish is heavily subsidized. Um, now, I'm not experienced in this area at all, but like I say, Professor Mozafarian, I think, has some very realistic ideas, um, some very implementable ideas, and it's going to be a case of changing, unfortunately, the law. Um, and this is going to take a lot of, of public pressure too. Um, the public have to be in on this. Um, obviously, the politicians, um, is, we certainly have this in the UK, um, they, they work with, and I think they, in certain, certain circumstances, they should, they should work with food industry. Um, but food industry is certainly way too powerful. Um, they have, we've seen with the sugar tax, how much the beverage industry is fighting the sugar tax, because guess what? They know that it's going to reduce their, their sales. Um, and so the politicians, frankly, we're not going to get policy changes or legislative changes unless there is public pressure behind um, these decisions. Um, but, but certainly changing the foodscape by sensible taxation um, would be a, a useful strategy, in my opinion. In the following clips, we'll talk a little more about key areas of athlete health, sleep and the gut. First, you'll hear from sleep scientist and medical doctor Sherry Ma about sleep fundamentals for athletes and then Dr. Miguel Mateus sharing his insights on the many complexities of the gut. I'm probably dating myself now. In 2002, we were doing a study that was looking at sleep extension in undergraduate athletes and simply looking at, hey, does this potential intervention extending sleep more than your regular habitual sleep could that be an intervention in which there might be daytime benefits and, and daytime performance um, uh, benefits? And we looked at this in undergraduates. By chance, there were some swimmers in the study. And that's sort of when the light bulb went off my head because they walked into the lab one day and had these like huge grins on their face. And they said, you know, Sherry, I just set a couple of personal records in my last swim meet. <laughs> and even though we know that we're looking at cognitive performance here, you know, that's nice, really... Nice side benefit. Was, yeah, exactly. It was this aha moment, right? And I was just so fascinated with it because we recognize that so many undergraduate students are very sleep deprived. That's obviously, uh, we all probably remember sure. those days. <laughs> and so fast forward a little bit to my master's. That's when I said, you know, let's really repeat this study and look at sleep extension in specifically athletes. I have access to phenomenal Division One athletes at Stanford. And the basketball team was uh, the first that I specifically asked to study this in. And, you know, we got back some pretty astounding results where we saw that over the course of the season, multiple weeks of extended sleep resulted in 9% improvement in their free throws and their three-point shots, and they were able to sprint faster. The response times were faster. And I think, you know, it's, it's not too groundbreaking that maybe sleep more, sleep better. You might feel a little bit better and refreshed, but I think the quantification is what has been quite intriguing for athletes to understand how much this could potentially provide them in terms of a performance boost. For sure, when everyone's mining so many different areas and this sort of, uh, at the time, this uh, untapped area of just getting more sleep, which is, uh, you know, phenomenal in terms of these benefits. Now, um, 
you know, what about prior to even major competitions? What's happening with, with athletes if we dovetail into that in terms of their sleep before big events or big competitions? Is it changing at all? Well, I think the question is it shouldn't be just something that we prioritize and focus on prior to the big competition, right? This is hopefully an area of training that's fundamentally essential every night. <laughs> and For the strategy sure. really should be that it's about chronic long-term sleep habits. Of course, yes, the week leading up to an important competition I think that could be a period in which we're specifically keying in on sleep duration, but it's not just about the duration, right? We've we've talked a little bit. It's about the quality of sleep and also, for example, body clock strategies. If you're traveling or crossing time zones, those are also key areas to consider. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I suppose I was going down the route of, um, you know, athletes not sleeping as well before big competitions. So maybe that idea of even accumulated sleep debt or even banking sleep before competitions, which you sort of touched on there with getting into a good sleep hygiene um, in terms of getting the regular hours. And is there a, a number of hours that, you know, if people are more high level, high performing athletes that they should be shooting for? Sure. The recommendation for every healthy adult currently uh, is seven hours as a minimum threshold to prevent health risks and performance decrements. But there's obviously variation in that. I honestly feel terrible on seven hours of sleep. I'm very grumpy. Uh, I feel much more refreshed uh, closer to the nine hours. So I know that that's actually closer to my what we call individual sleep need. Um, for elite athletes, the expert recommendation seems to hover around eight to 10 hours. And the interesting thing is that we know how much you think you're getting often can be quite different than objectively what athletes are, are obtaining at nighttime. Um, so that's sort of the, the recommendation. I would say for someone who maybe is falling short of that recommendation of even minimally hitting seven hours, it's all about gradual changes. You know, we, we, we like gradual changes more than um, quick jumps. So if you're someone who's getting six hours, no, don't jump to 10 hours tonight, but do that gradually, maybe a half hour more. Um, and what I found is sometimes pushing back the bedtime and going to bed a little bit earlier um, can be a little bit more uh, easy of a transition than shifting that wake up time, which sometimes we like to anchor and keep that the same every day. But um, to answer your question about prior to the big competitions as well, yes, a lot of athletes struggle with sleep the night before competition and also after competition is quite common. Terrific. And so obviously if people are incorporating these habits ahead of time, then that little blip in terms of not sleeping so well before competition is not a major issue. But if people have a more of an accumulated sleep that I imagine that can be you know, a major decrement for performance no, on, on, on competition day. Definitely. That's why, again, this, we stress it's about the chronic sleep habits, right? So if we know that leading up to a competition that night before is going to be quite difficult just by knowing this, this athlete and that's something that they struggle with, um, there have been some studies to suggest that even getting additional sleep and paying back some of that sleep debt in days leading up to a, an event that you will be definitely restricted in your sleep, that can provide benefits. Um, so whether or not we call that sleep banking, um, you know, we're, yeah, I think that's a little controversial in terms of whether we think that you're actually surplusing that necessarily, but gotcha. there's definitely those measures in which we think that you can prevent certain decrements in a scenario in which we know you're not going to get adequate sleep. Fantastic. And, you know, certain athletes as well, and I remember in university, you know, rowers, swimmers, and even, you know, growing up ice hockey players here in Canada, getting up at really the crack of dawn uh, to train. What's going to happen here if athletes have to really get up at, you know, 5 a.m. sometimes earlier uh, to, to get their training in? What's going to happen in terms of recovery and potentially performance? Uh, 
Oh man, the early morning workout sessions are, it pains me so much. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, because we know that depending on the age, right? We are our sleep architecture. So how, uh, how much we need and the stages of sleep, um, that can change during the course of a life. So depending on what age you're referring to, but definitely young adults can have what we call a delayed body clock where they're naturally going to want to go to bed and wake up later. Right. So you probably remember during the college age or high school age, you're, you were more inclined to stay up late and then wake up later in the morning time. So that's, that can be problematic, right? If we have early morning training sessions where that could be cutting in to get to getting sufficient sleep, right? So if those athletes are going to bed later and they're forced to wake up earlier, you know, I'll bet you're not getting the most productive work or lift session out of them. Um, For sure. I think that that's, that's tricky because we're limited in sometimes the scheduling of training sessions for athletes. But one thing that I have suggested to teams or athletes where this is uh, a common scenario is that there have been studies to suggest that even scheduling uh, periodic recovery days to allow athletes to sleep in, um, in the morning time has demonstrated benefits for recovery and, and stress scores. So while yes, we, we as sleep scientists very much, reiterate that um, we want to have regular sleep and wake schedules. This is one helpful strategy that I think can be utilized from time to time. <laughs> All good. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And obviously, yeah, the research on the gut microbiota and microbiome over the last uh, decade has been uh, really uh, changed how a lot of people look at things. And of course, your recent paper, Harnessing the Power of Microbiome Assessment Tools as Part of Neuroprotective Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine Interventions. Now, in that paper, you mentioned you know, gastrointestinal dysbiosis being consistently reported in a lot of these metabolic diseases. Can you dig into that a little bit deeper? Yeah, so dysbiosis, just for anybody who um, um, doesn't know what it means, basically, dysbiosis means uh, uh, disrupted life basically and uh, um, it means that the the ecosystem in your gut that should be a bit like a forest with uh, different animals and different predators and different animals that get eaten and all this kind of stuff doesn't quite happen as it should happen in a what the ideal healthy gut should look like. So you could have a forest that has got very few trees of one kind and loads of trees that are you know, purple instead of green and, and you haven't got enough snails, so then the birds get hungry and you know, this, all this kind of like disruption in the, in the fauna and flora well, that when you actually look at what is happening in the gut, it's actually very similar. It's an ecosystem that is alive and changing all the time, like a garden or a forest and that you need to feed it and you need to water it and uh, and it changes in temperature and pH and there's loads of stuff going on if you get into the more technical kind of a language, this, this constant allostasis or dynamic um, uh, uh, balance going on all the time that you, you're like a bit like a plane kind of a cruising at, at different altitudes all the time to just keep, them, keep, keep balanced. And the gut is just the perfect example of this complex adaptive system that, that is changing um, all the time to accommodate what goes on in it. So, and it's a bi-directional thing. So the gut bacteria, uh, are certain gut bacteria are attracted to certain conditions. So it's almost like you go on holiday to a hot country because you fancy a bit of sun. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, your uh, gut uh, 
it's only going to it's also going to change as a result of what gut bacteria are coming in from the air and from the food that you're eating. That's why food is so powerful. But not only that, and this is the most fascinating stuff that I'm kind of like focusing on right now in my current research is the is what your thoughts are and what your state of mind uh, is going to be doing to your to your gut bacteria. Um, so there's a, this, all these kind of like complex relationships between different organs and particularly the brain and the central nervous system and the gut. Yeah, it's, it's really compelling stuff. And of course, you mentioned the food we eat having a huge impact and of course, ultra processed food being so um, playing such a strong role. I recently saw a stat showing that in the UK, about 50% of all the food consumed by folks is ultra processed. Um, mm -hmm. Can you uh, shed some light on how this then impacts um, gut microbiota diversity? Sure. So ultra processed foods basically uh, are kind of like quite trendy at the moment just because there's this thing called the Nova classification that's been published by a guy called Monteiro at the um, uh, university, top university in Brazil uh, with a team of experts that uh, has looked at um, the, the what they people in Europe eat in 19 European countries and they kind of like did a, a a very complex analysis of all the kind of uh, the, the shopping baskets of uh, Europeans, basically, and they came up with this uh, ranking of where in Europe people eat more food that is made from scratch and where people are more attracted to convenience food. So, you know, grabbing something that's in a box and you can just put in the microwave and, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's it, it's easy. So uh, the more ultra-processed the, um, the food, the more uh, uh, availability of refined carbohydrates is going to be in that uh, food. And typically as well, because of the, the processing um, of the food, there's going to be this thing called the bliss point that manufacturers work towards, which is basically a perfect kind of uh, flavor in the food that's going to be salty enough or flavorful enough and sweet enough. So Kick up that hyperpalatability, make us going back for more. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That's it. They want you to buy the food again and again. They want you to buy that product again and again because it's delicious. So they really do a lot of research on that, on that kind of like bliss point. And it's basically a combination of the certain fats and certain manufacturing processes and the uh, consistency that may involve various different gums and preservatives and uh, things like monosodium glutamate and enhancers and all of this kind of stuff. That is a little bit, you know, the food may look very natural like the product on the plate may actually look very natural, but it may be fairly processed compared to something that you can make at home. So when you have that kind of situation where you're feeding your bacteria, and again, going back to the analogy of a, of a forest, and you go to the forest and uh, there may be some, you know, some carnivorous animals there, maybe some, you know, some lions, and you feed them something that is completely processed, they're not going to feel very satiated for very long. They're going to want more very quickly as opposed to giving them a whole animal for them to get into and have to peel the skin from the animal and get to the organs and, you know, and get the meat, you know, it's going to take them a little bit longer. Sure. If you look at that situation in the gut and you feed your gut foods that are, have got roughage, they've got fiber, they haven't been processed by intensive cooking and pasteurization. So your bacteria need to chomp at the uh, foot a little bit high, uh, harder in order to get the nutrients out than if it's all kind of been processed and uh, pre-cooked and then cooked again. And you know how 
the macronutrient compositions in food actually alter uh, by heat and uh, light exposure. So uh, it's kind of like shortening the, uh, the, the, the process whereby the bacteria actually get energy out of the food. So not only are we contributing to more uh, situations where your blood sugar may be dysregulated and you are contributing to putting on weight and ultimately obesity and so on, you're also doing that by means of allowing your gut bacteria to draw more uh, calories out of the food. And this is known that you know certain types of bacteria, like the bacteroidetes, for example, are very uh, calorie hungry. They, are, they were there when we were, um, for a reason, when we were hunter-gatherers and uh, we didn't have food all the time. So you could go for a couple of days without a lot of food. And if all you could grab was a handful of um, uh, um, berries, for example, those bacteria were really useful because they allowed you to get loads of calories out of those and make the most out of them. But in a situation where you have supermarkets everywhere, open 24 hours a day, and you can get food all the time, they are not so useful anymore. So this is why ultra-processed foods actually contribute to a situation where certain types of bacteria that are very uh, good at getting calories out of food, and they grow a lot as a result of being given this almost fertilizer kind of food, they grow out of control. So you could have spikes of certain families that grow out of control, and they crowd out other families that are in the gut normally, but in lower numbers, so they feel a bit marginalized. So, you know, they go into a bit of a ghetto, like tiny little amounts of these families only survive. And it just happens to be that those are actually very important and they are very anti-inflammatory and they contribute to the overall balance of the ecosystem in the gut. So you basically just alter the whole of the ecosystem as a result. Terrific, and of course we see uh, you know, unfortunately, the people who are struggling with weight gain, struggling with metabolic conditions, struggling with chronic disease, we tend to see, you know, that lack of diversity. Uh, and of course, uh -huh. you touch on in your paper as well, just the impact of exercise on the gut microbiota. Could you touch on that and how physical activity impacts uh, diversity and abundance? Yeah, so this is a, a booming kind of area of research at the moment. Is scientists the short of it, really? Because you know, I'm going around the houses with my answers. I'm, 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 <laughs> no worries. You know, I'm 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 British and Spanish, but I'm very Spanish in my answers. If you can say something in 500 words instead of two words, I'll say it in 500 words. <laughs> so that's the Spanish in me. <laughs> so um, basically, the uh, uh, this area of research, the short answer is that. Scientists don't really know why this happens yet. They are kind of uh, hypothesizing what the, the actual mechanism may be. Um, one of the hypotheses is that uh, because you actually change your frame of mind when you're exercising uh, and you're more in the moment, at that time you actually start producing, when you're exercising, you start producing more of the anti-inflammatory cytokines in the body. You know, you've got this kind of... Uh, uh, pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory kind of like um, seesaw all For the sure. time in the body. And at the time that you exercise, you promote more of an anti-inflammatory situation than a pro-inflammatory situation. And you remember I was talking about the the environment that is provided by, by your own gut to bacteria as an invitation to settle there or to go on holiday for bacteria that don't really settle, but they just travel through you for a few days. So people who are more inflamed 
uh, don't offer the kind of uh, glossy brochure that you want to, you know, you want to um, browse and say, oh, that looks like a really good gut. I'm going to go through it. I'm possibly I'm going to colonize it. Uh, some bacteria will go through it and they will think, okay, this is just too rough an environment. It's very hostile. I'm just going to go through this gut and come out the other way. I don't want, I don't really want to stay here. And that's what happens in guts that are uh, typically of people who have got uh, fat around the middle, which is very um, active um, hormonally. It's, uh, it's producing loads of these short-lived hormones called cytokines that are um, uh, known really for their uh, inflammatory power. Although, as I said, we've got both inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. So it's all about the, the levels of inflammation, but your frame of mind and how exercise makes you feel and the actual kind of like quality of how your mind feels after doing whatever you're doing, whether it's running, training in the gym, doing a yoga class, all of all types of exercise have got the ability to to make you more focused and clearer in your thinking, and that is also a result of uh, lowering levels of free radicals in the in the brain, basically clearing free radicals in the brain. Um, so there's a complex relationship between the brain and the gut in, in this case. Um, yeah, it's interesting stuff we see, obviously, in team sport, we see in endurance sport. Yeah, with, with exercise, we tend to get that increase in diversity, increase in abundance. But of course, once we take things to sort of an elite level and we're really pushing hard, um, I recently had Dr. Tommy Wood on last year. And we were talking about ultra endurance athletes. And of course, that duration and intensity of exercise tends to promote more of a leaky gut and, you know, I think exactly. it was almost 87% of the uh, participants. So, you know, is there a tipping point there? Because I know we exactly. all have a little bit of leaky gut, but where is that, that tipping point potentially for when things start to go wrong? Well, exactly. And this is, uh, I, I cite a couple of papers on that uh, in, in, in my paper that you've been talking about. So there's always going to be the situation of um, homeostasis, which is balance or looking for balance, and allostasis, which is balance that moves about. So it's kind of like a timeline of balance, balance that is not static, it's kind of like moving along. And there's an idea that is very well explored in kind of a functional medicine, lifestyle medicine circles. And uh, when you're looking at that allostasis and you're looking at leaky gut, leaky gut can be there as a spike that then basically goes down and it can be measured by means of uh, things like occludine and sonulin and so on that are available by different labs. You know, they're used in academia just to measure things in, in experiments, but also commercially there will be labs out there that will give you that kind of reading. And if they, they, when you're working with a, a, a client privately or with, you know, with a, an elite team, an elite team may have a lot more dollars to put towards testing. So they may feel like they want to test at various times during whatever course of training you're doing with them. So you are basically uh, um, able to plot a bit of a timeline as to what their gut is doing in terms of uh, uh, leakiness or permeability but uh, people who come to see you like once because they have a situation with their gut and uh, you know they want to explore what going what's going on and you may tell them they've got leaky gut on the basis of one single reading you cannot really tell them that they've got leaky gut because there could be a situation where sonulin and oclidin may be really high as a result to exposure to I don't know antibiotics or um, uh, ibuprofen or uh, pollution or anything like that. And then uh, a few days later, it actually goes down because it's got, it's got the ability to repair itself. Sure. So this is something that's uh, that's quite interesting that, you know, there's a, and it's all, almost like a hormetic kind of a curve as well. So 
exercise is a perfect example of uh, hormesis. So a little bit of exercise is going to uh, activate your uh, gut immunity. It's going to uh, enable the ability to repair, to produce a little bit of uh, certain molecules like the um, uh, secretory IgA, which is part of the normal mucus layer in the gut. Uh, it's also going to simulate some of the bacteria or provide the environment for the bacteria that produce butyrate, which is highly anti-inflammatory. It's a waxy, oily kind of uh, substance that's 80% um, of butter is butyrate. So you have an idea of what this consistency is going to be like. It's almost applying a moisturizer to your the <laughs> like inside that. of your gut. So it's repairing that kind of cracks that, you know, you can think about permeability as little holes or cracks. You're, you're applying this moisturizer and kind of like soothing them, smoothing them over like a, like a plaster kind of a, on a crack on a wall. Um, and, uh, um, and too much exercise, if you have somebody overtraining, can actually trigger such an amount of free radicals that can break those cracks even more. So it can actually trigger spikes in sonulin that stay high. So rather than actually just a spike that then goes low, it basically just triggers the baseline actually raises. And that's been documented in a few studies actually, that uh, um, it's a reality basically. If you overtrain over a sustained period of time, you're actually contributing to leaky gut. So it's all about training hard, letting your body repair, and then training hard again, but enabling that ability, building in that, that ability for the for the body to repair. And we're very aware of the muscles as something that we need to allow for them to repair in order to break again and grow again. And don't forget that the gut is the biggest muscle in the body. So you've got a lot of muscle in the uh, in the colon that needs to repair as well. So you need to treat it with that kind of mentality as well that is going to have that 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 necessity to repair as well. In this next block of highlights, we're going to talk body composition. First Director of Innovation at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific, Dr. Trent Stellingworth, will share his research on endurance athletes and body composition periodization. From there, Dr. Susan Kleiner, longtime sport dietitian, will discuss the importance of energy availability for performance and body composition in female athletes. And last in this section, Dr. Doug Kalman will talk weight making in combat sports and the challenges of weight loss in combat sports like boxing. Keep talking here on the, on the endurance side of things in terms of, um, you know, benefits from a periodized body composition approach, things around, you know, injury reduction, illness risk in athletes. Are there some gains to be made there potentially? Yeah, I mean, uh, th there's a whole host of um, observational and correlation-based data, um, mainly in the female athlete triad field, showing um, yeah, females with uh, amenorrhea or, or uh, um, lack of a normal menstrual cycle having significant increases in, in injury and illness outcomes. So, so definitely um, um, that could be something to consider. Uh, I also think uh, in the early 80s, um, Bosco has a couple of classic papers where over a two to three week period, he had athletes chronically wear five or 10% extra body weight and weighted vests. And so they had to walk around, they had to do everything with these weighted vests on. Okay. And, and I make very, it was like a throwaway line in the, in this, in, in, in the body comp, nine year body comp nutrition uh, periodization paper. It's a, I couldn't, I add word count limits, but 
this classic work by Bosco showed just with chronic overload of weight, um, once you take the weight off, there was significant improvements in, in jump outcomes and performance outcomes um, and, and everything else. And now he, he was putting five to 10% of body weight on and, and that did come at a increased injury cost just in terms of trying to train with weighted vests. Yep. But I think that there's also a significant advantage to training eight, nine, 10 months a year, three or 4% heavier. You're training your heart, your muscles, your lungs to carry that extra body weight. It's a training stimulus. And if you run 100K a week, you take 100,000 steps. Each step is three to four, a force, three to four times your body weight. You add uh, two or 3% body weight on that. The total amount of neuromuscular load is significantly more. And uh, then when you periodize and, and uh, every single year you can periodize um, um, the body composition uh, again in the lead co concept down for uh, you, you get a performance benefit just just from neuromuscular loading parameters. I, at least I believe it. And um, I think that there's a there's a benefit there as well. And a lot of athletes early in their career, um, high school athletes might lose a lot of body weight and they see they see a performance trend benefit. Uh, but then they just pin themselves down there. They have nowhere to go. They get skinnier and skinnier. And that's when you run into very significant health troubles. Um, instead of having to, you know, I, I say that some people, a boost of performance one time in your career, why not be way more healthier? And we can periodize it for every single spring and summer, right? So um, it, 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 it's a newer concept. There, there, there is validation that's required for this. But there's, there's a lot of, um, I think, underpinning and logic to this. Um, but again, uh, it's only something that I think the elite of the elite athletes should be uh, considering with their nutrition team and with their health team and, and w with with a team of professionals. Definitely. Yeah, very well said. And um, you're right in a sense that oftentimes athletes, um, you know, pushing hard if they want to improve body composition, well, you just keep training harder and keep reducing caloric intake drastically. And, you know, as you mentioned, it can create a lot of issues. Um, so what type of caloric reduction were you were you aiming for during these periods and, you know, potentially what type of, of body weight loss per week was, uh, was the goal? Yeah, it's tiny and it's subtle. Uh, there's a couple of papers that have come out in the last two months showing how as little as three to 400 calorie mismatch within a day over a prolonged period of time also results in reds. Um, so adverse hormonal profile, low testosterone, lack excuse me, lack of menstrual cycle in females. And so micro periodization within day periodization of energy, um, in other words, uh, don't skip breakfast kind of, kind of mentality is really important. And just 300 calories, um, over a prolonged time can have that effect. And I know 300 calories doesn't sound like, like much. It's, it's smaller than what we can actually measure on an individual level because energy intake measurements are so, so challenging. For sure. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it could be a smoothie. And indeed, on, on a one day, a one off one day, it's 300 calories is nothing. But multiply that by 365 days, and it's 110,000 calories missing over the year. It's, it's about a month of eating. Wow. So when you, when you flip it that way and you say to the athlete, well, okay, let's not eat for the month of March, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> For sure. But but that's what it is because it's just it's it's small it's subtle it's like Chinese water torture it's just a little bit every single day but it's it's a mismatch, and so um, so when doing body comp optimization I I tend to 
try and work with athletes in that range of, of no more than three or 400 kcals per day. Um, it's really hard to measure that. I don't even attempt it, but I'll, I'll show pictures and diagrams of, of different examples of what three or 400 kcals might look like. Mm-hmm. We, tr- we try to periodize it to the easier training days rather than the hard days, because on the hard days you want to perform really well in your training and you need to recover. Um, we'll use indicators like um, uh, hunger pains, um, irritability, uh, training quality, um, as well as body weight tracking to try and help individualize and optimize that over time. And at the very most, we're only looking at maybe 0.5 to 0.8% of body weight per week. And so you do need some time to, to do this. Um, you know, usually it's six to eight weeks out from a, a, a championship season or, or a targeted, um, you know, summer season of, of racing. And, and you might start there and, and, and start to put this intervention in and try to try to work on things. Um, it's not drastic. It's subtle. Um, I will also stress, though, um, at any point, if I had an athlete that has a history of um, poor testosterone, a history of stress fractures, and a history of stress fractures is two or more, mm-hmm. or lack of a menstrual cycle, or any indicators of uh, disordered eating or eating disorders, um, there's no way I'm going to I'm, I'm going to want to work with them in this space. There's, if we just keep them uh, weight stable and healthy, they will adapt to training way better, way better. Um, they will perform way better. And, and, and so I think it's really important to think about when and where you might use this, and, but also when and where you, it's not indicated to use this. Um, when you think about energy availability, it's different than energy balance. Energy availability is energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure. And so it's two parameters that the athlete has full control over, energy intake and energy exercise energy expenditure. It does not feature BMR or thermic effect of food or all these things that are vague notions to the athlete. So if whatever's left over after you exercise from energy intake is, is what energy is available for your body to work optimally. And if there's very little left over, guess what? We, we evolved as humans. That energy is going to go to your brain and your organs. It doesn't care about your muscles. It doesn't care about making mitochondria. It doesn't care about your bones. It's just, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to prioritize that little bit of energy you've left over to, to keeping you alive. And so um, I think there's an energy prioritization, availability prioritization uh, concept that's probably going to get a lot more research in the next few years and, and understanding how... Um, I've had athletes who, you know, a female athlete who had an menstrual cycle in three years complaining that her fingernails don't grow. And I'm like, listen, uh-huh. in terms of the prioritization of energy, it's probably number 1,000 on the list, right? Definitely. So it's, yeah. So again, I'm, I'm being, it's a concept that is intriguing, but it's also, it needs to be in the right place at the right time. And I've had interventions with athletes who come in and want to talk body comp periodization with me. And over time, I reverse them and, and talk about just um, um, uh, health stability in terms of um, sex hormone stability. And, you know, a year or two later, they're running faster than they've ever run before because because we were able to get their health back on track. So uh, yeah. to me, uh, health trumps any and all of this.
Yeah, and specific to women, you know, what are some of those repercussions when we talk about, you know, excessive or prolonged caloric restriction, a lot of the, you know, the fad diets in terms of health or hormonal balance? Right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the our reproductive system, which is controls the top of the pyramid of our peripheral metabolic pathway, our, our reproductive hormones are integrally linked to our energy metabolism. And when uh, we don't have enough energy available, which is, um, as I said, many young athletes in particular in their, you know, from their teens to their, you know, until about 30, they can push through low energy availability and they're fueling their sport, but they're not fueling their reproductive systems. They're not fueling bone mineral metabolism. They're not fueling their even their brains, their cardiovascular system, um, um, protein, uh, you know, and tissue building, and all of that recovery system. As that starts to break down, first thing, first thing that most women notice is that they lose their periods or their periods become irregular and that's not normal and it's not good and in fact in studies that have pitted women who are at an olympic level of training and performance those that have maintained their periods compared to those who purposefully tapered their diet toward competition and lost their menstrual cycle, those who maintain their menstrual cycle outperform, statistically significantly perform better than those who have lost their menstrual cycle. And so the myth that we, we do better when we lose our cycles is not true. And, and so energy metabolism breaks down and then we start to notice, and many women come to me saying, I'm working out harder, I'm eating less, but I'm getting softer. I'm, you know, I don't have the energy. I'm working harder and longer. This is um, often with runners. I'm, I'm training longer and my performance is diminishing. It's, um, you know, I've got brain fog. I can't sleep well. All of these things start to, you know, mood disturbances. They are all from low energy availability. And so you ultimately will not be able to sustain your sport for the long haul. And in the general population for that person who jumps into a weight loss plan, maybe it is a really calorically restricted diet. They're starting to see a lot of weight loss in the short term. Can you dive into what's going on there? What type of weight are they losing in that short phase and how does that translate into the longer term? Well, it's kind of funny. It depends on exactly what they're doing and how much weight they had to lose to begin with. Um, people who are very overweight and obese can lose a lot of weight in a short period of time because the margin between how much food they need to maintain their weight and sustain that weight versus the amount of food that they actually need to be healthy is large. And so it's a, it's a wide range. And so 
in order to, um, you know, if they if they decrease that even halfway, they lose a lot of weight in the beginning, and that's okay. Um, no matter how they do it, in fact, as long as they're getting enough of their you know essential nutrients and macronutrients, they're there. It's okay, and and sometimes even the data supports that people who lose more weight early on actually are more successful in in maintaining a weight loss program and maybe even maintaining their weight loss over time. However, if you have only a smaller amount of weight to lose, let's say, you know, 20 to 30 pounds, your margins of your caloric intake for maintaining weight versus losing weight are much narrower. And so you begin to restrict more so and then you put yourself in that very low energy availability category. In that instance, if what you've done is, let's say the very common practice today is removing carbohydrate from the diet. And I mean really removing carbohydrate, not just taking out the fast food and the snack foods and the, and the just starchy foods, but you're still eating fruits and vegetables. If you have removed, if you've gone on a ketogenic diet or you're eating below 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, that can't fuel exercise. That can fuel a couch potato. And so if you're trying to exercise and you're feeling fatigued and you're not sleeping well and you're having a hard time handling your moods, then you're not going to maintain that. You will have lost it initially, along with the sort of very low carb diet, you lose a lot of water because as we store carbohydrate in our muscle cells, for each molecule of stored carbohydrate, which we call glycogen, we store three molecules of water right in that muscle cell, which is where we want it so that we're well hydrated and energy metabolism can take off like a rocket when we need it, when we exercise, and protein metabolism can, can kick in when we want to recover, repair, and grow muscle, get bigger, faster, stronger, basically. So, so when that water is lost, as we deplete carbohydrate from our body, the scale goes down. But that has no reflection at all to what's happening with our body composition. The only thing that body weight on a scale reflects is our body's mass relationship to gravity. <laughs> True. Nothing to do with fat loss, fat gain, muscle loss, muscle gain. It just has nothing to do with it. So the fact that we've lost a bunch of weight, it is some fat, it's also a significant amount of water, and depending on how large your body is, you can easily lose 10 pounds of water, um, you know, the larger you are. And the minute you start to eat carbs again, that, you know, nine-tenths of that weight returns. And it's very frustrating and most people say, well, the heck with it. I'm a failure. I can't do this. 
and I'm just going to bag it and go back to the fish and chips or whatever else I've always been eating because because my body is broken and it doesn't work. And in fact, you just have the wrong information. Our bodies will work with the right information. Absolutely well said. And of course, definitely circle back to the mindset piece as we get towards the end here. But you know, if it's the new year now, and if someone is ready to go on a program and change their lifestyle, and their diet, and perhaps exercise as well, hopefully, um, if we talk about baselines, you touched on things like, you know, a scale, tape measures, calipers, bioimpedance, DEXA scan, you know, is there something that you prefer with, with your clients? If it's general population versus athletes, where can people start? Oh, how do your pants fit? I mean, <laughs> nice. it's, it's what's your goal? Make your measurement reflect your goals. And so if, if it doesn't matter, whether your body composition, your percent body fat is 28% or 22%, don't measure it. That's not, you know, you're not trying to hit a target because of a specific position on a team where we have, you know, gobs of data that people perform better at that body composition. And in fact, I don't even rarely use that because too many times it doesn't meet that individual's performance level. So, but but really, if what you're trying to do is be healthy, more fit, and look better to yourself in the mirror, then use those measurements. So you can, a waist circumference measurement is might be the best measure for you. Um, if you are always sort of lean in your waist, but it's your, your hips that you think are carrying your weight, then, then measure your hips. Um, and mostly for so many women, it's how do I look in my jeans? And so um, put those on and, and see how you look, but don't make it only about how you look. It's really all about how you feel. And, um, and how are you sleeping at night? Are you able to rest well? Are you managing your moods well? Are your relationships going well? Do you have enough energy in your day to exercise because you should that's super important exercise and diet are not two separate things they are one we need to fuel our our bodies to be able to have the energy to exercise and if we're not exercising we won't have the energy that we need to get through the rest of our day and life's challenges well so so the, the, the combination is critically important. While you may read that exercise doesn't help you lose weight, it's all about exercise when we want to maintain weight. And exercise during weight loss helps you maintain your muscle mass, which helps you stay healthier and stronger and improve your exercise performance. So, so keep the exercise in your life and challenge yourself. And so those those combinations, what are your touch points in your day of how you feel? Um, are you getting sick a lot? Then you probably don't have enough fuel to maintain your immune system. There's, there's all these things we want to maintain our foundational well-being and health and all the systems that keep us healthy and fuel our exercise. And that combination will allow us to have an active life for the long haul and continually adjust our bodies to where we want it to be. For, for an athlete, 
we do look at performance and we may do other measurements, body composition measurements, both for are you getting too lean, are you dropping too much weight, as well as um, knowing what your body composition is, I can best determine your absolute energy needs. And so we do uh, body composition measures based on what are the tools available either from my office or the team that I'm working with. And, and those can flux between multi-frequency bioelectrical impedance uh, to DEXA scans or, or whatever is available, uh, bod pods um, some teams have. Um, I don't use calipers too much anymore because I think that women in particular really focus on those numbers. And when I work with my clients, I don't give them their numbers. I tell them that they're irrelevant, that I need them to help determine their energy needs. They just need to keep doing what they're doing and focus on how they feel and perform. For sure, and Doug, we kind of zoom out again to just uh, the start of a cut. So for, a, for an athlete who's trying to make weight, is there a certain number of weeks that you like to have with your fighters to, to be able to begin that process? What does that look like? That's a great question. And I'm, there's not a clear cut answer. I, I, I do have a preference. I like, I, I like to have at least six or eight weeks to work with an athlete, you know, um, at least sometimes it, sometimes you're blessed with 12. But then, like, for example, I, I have a fighter. Um, I'm trying to think, was it two days ago? Saturday uh, that I learned Saturday that uh, he just got a last minute fight, that he just accepted a last minute fight. And um, so last minute means he's got, I think it's three weeks to cut 22 pounds. Wow. So, um, you know, that becomes, um, I wouldn't say that becomes, that, that is part of, um, you know, what comes into play. You're going to work with somebody differently that's got 22 pounds over three weeks to lose versus somebody that, you know, eight weeks has those 22 pounds. And you have to realize, Mark, um, that our body, again, is made up of part of water. Uh, or fluids. So if you know, if I know that we're going to weigh in on a Friday at 10 a.m., but yet you're not going to fight until Saturday, until after 6 p.m., you have 24 to 30 hours to totally refuel. So in that instance, my rule of thumb in general, my rule of thumb is I like fighters to be within seven, within seven or eight pounds, seven to 10 days out of the fight. So that their last week, that last weight cut, where you can manipulate water doesn't hurt them. Gotcha. Because, yeah, definitely that last week, there's a lot of different strategies. Uh, right. Many so old my, school strategies that strategy can be used, right? Are. I mean, I, I have somebody that I know that dropped 15 on, in, in, in the day before weigh-ins, which is ridiculous. Um, and and they were lucky enough that they were still able to refuel and pull off the fight. But as you know, when you're that depleted, on a cellular level, you don't recover in, in, in 12 or 24 hours. You just don't. Even if you drank two gallons of fluid with electrolytes and ate real food, you just it just doesn't happen. So that's why I try to keep most of the fighters within you know an easy sweating session of, of dropping their weight. And then we have 
protocols for rehydration after weigh-in anyway. And in terms of if you had that ideal scenario of, let's say, you're eight or ten weeks out of a fight, is there a certain caloric deficit that you're looking for week to week or, or, or body weight loss that you're looking to achieve week on week to be able to hit that ultimate goal, that weigh-in goal eight weeks out? Well, it really depends upon how much somebody has. So, for example, there's one fighter now that has a December 7th fight at a catch weight um, or at a 170, yeah, at a 170 catch weight. So when he first told me about it, he was 188 three weeks out. So I told him, all right, let's, we got to drop five this week, right? So then we can get him down. And then, so since that point, and I tell you the truth, the only thing that we've done is change his nutrition. We don't, so we got him right now. He's near, he's near weight for weigh-in. And so what do we, and, uh, but I, I believe you have to put in food, which is fuel in the system. You can't starve a person to make them lose their weight and ask them to exercise six hours a day. Right? So I just cut the calories. So I still give them enough where there's fuel in the system and where they're, but they're still irritable as an individual. (laughs) For sure. Um, so, for example, with this with this one with this gentleman who's a 170 pound fighter, you know, um, I actually I, I I used uh, I think it was a 1600 to 1800 calorie uh, meal plan with him, and because he totally prefers to lose all the weight by diet versus and versus manipulating water levels. And in terms of meal frequency, Doug, is there a strategy there or what does the evidence tell us between, you know, two or three meals in the day versus five or six for somebody who's a fighter who's trying to cut weight? Well, the evidence is, is really strong, believe it or not, that the smaller, more frequent meals, for example, four to six small meals, each including protein versus one or two meals that had the same amount of total protein, right, will help you preserve retain, preserve more lean body mass, more muscle tone as you're cutting weight. So my strategy, and this is not just one study, there's a plethora of studies in in judoka, in judo, athletes, in wrestlers, in other weight-based sports that show this. So my strategy is always using the four to six small meal uh, variable, uh, if you will, with, with, with the athletes. And again, to me, anything with calories counts as a meal. I, I, I don't mean a stick of gum that has five or 10 calories. <laughs> but sure. if, somebody's, if somebody's having, you know, two scoops of whey protein, that's 50 grams. That's 200 calories right there. And let's say they're mixing it in with uh, a small handful of blueberries and light almond milk. So that's already going to get towards 300 calories. So that's a meal to me. Maybe because I'm a smaller guy, that's a meal, but that's calories. So I count that as one of the feedings, if you will. So I try to do four to six small feedings throughout the day with the lo- with not all of the meals or snacks being equal in calories throughout the day. There is an emphasis for higher amounts of, of calories during some of the active recovery meals. Um, but like I said, it's about having a caloric deficit. I don't like large caloric deficits. If you give me enough time, I only really want a caloric deficit of 350 to 500 calories per day. Um, I don't want my person to totally feel like they're starving, which then mentally screws with them and they want to go and and, and that distracts them from their task at hand. So um, there is a learning curve for anybody to get sort of comfortable with being hungry. 
but there's a difference in between starving and being just a little hungry. For sure, yeah. I mean, definitely getting that protein intake up to be able to preserve that lean muscle, as you mentioned, and keep that satiety up and let them perform. And, you know, Doug, what about resting metabolic rate? As you mentioned, if you're dropping calories by too much, um, that can have an impact. What do we know about fighters over the course of a competitive season or even in wrestlers when we reduce that caloric intake too much? Well, there's a, a couple of classic studies in wrestlers, especially out of Purdue University, but where, where they basically found that those that wrestlers that cut weight during the wrestling season, their metabolism slows by, I think it was 250 to 300 calories, which is a lot. That could be 10% of somebody's total caloric intake to slow, if you think about it. So um, there's a negative effect to what I call yo-yo dieting. Um, and over the long term, we actually don't know we do know that after a wrestling season that if a person goes back to their pre-wrestling weight or near it, their metabolic rate will go back to their normal. However, we don't know what is the impact and the effect of repeatedly being hypocaloric, burning extra calories and cutting weight you know, throughout the year and then throughout two years, throughout three years. We don't know if there's a long-term metabolic damage from it, but we do know that it seems to have a short-term impact in slowing your metabolism. All right. In this final block, you'll hear from Dr. Sean Arndt, professor and chair of the Department of Exercise Science at the University of South Carolina and the director of the U of SC Sports Science Lab, sharing his research and insights on novel biomarkers for athlete recovery. And then we'll bring it home with a little discussion on mindset. Longtime performance coach and consultant who has worked with elite athletes in multiple sports and the tactical world for over 25 years, George Carvajal, will share his experience with burnout and how it reshaped his mindset and how he shaped his lifestyle. And to wrap up this highlights episode, Dr. Peter Jensen, Canada basketball sports psychologist, will talk imagery, perfectionism, and the power of reframing. Again, circle back that idea of an athlete kind of getting into those late stages of a season, perhaps struggling with recovery, perhaps struggling with body composition. Are there any themes around nutrition that you find cropping up amongst the various sports that you guys sort of reinforce to your athletes? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think, Mark, what amazed me was when we started working with women's soccer in particular on the sport nutrition side of things. Um, I think given what we do, we there's certain – I guess, pieces of knowledge or, you know, basic information that we take for granted sometimes. What amazed me is even in these college athletes, how many of them do not know the difference between a carb, a fat and a protein. Yeah. Simple stuff. And so sometimes we get so hung up on these really minute details when it comes to uh, nutrition with these athletes and what it actually requires that we step back and we go, okay, so animal, plant or mineral, you know, and it's one of those things where, you know, sort of educating them on on nutrition basics takes precedence over everything else and then once you get that understood and dialed in now you can start to make the the, the better adjustments i think where we've probably had the most success is helping them understand that a calorie is not a bad word you know that that yeah. it, it's just a measure of fueling you know and it's helping them to understand that that these are things you need to take in and, and try to get them to understand what it means to feed the machine 
You know, here's the work you do. And I will say that from our standpoint, one of the things that has two things that have probably been critical in helping the athletes appreciate this to a greater degree is one, the training load data that we collect, because now, you know, between GPS and heart rate and actually showing, uh, for example, one of our center backs that she burns in excess of 2000 calories a game, um, you know, that's an eye opener for them. And it's like, whoa, so wait, how much do I need to eat? And it's funny because they start to put it into the context of, oh, my God. So you're telling me my 1,500 calories isn't enough. And so yes, that's exactly they, what we're telling you. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, yep, there you go. Now you're getting it because they have this, this comparison point. It becomes really pretty easy math for them. The second thing that's helped us quite a bit are our biomarkers because it's able we're able to pick up on where certain deficiencies are. One of the trends that we've seen that's been fairly consistent over the last three or four seasons are changes in iron status, changes in hemoglobin and hematocrit, and changes in vitamin D and omega-3 status in a lot of our athletes. Um, and as we've gotten that information and as we've understood where the changes started to occur, we've been able to address that a little bit earlier. And this season, we didn't have quite this, not that we didn't have any change, but we didn't have quite the same degree of change for most of the athletes that we've had in the past because we can identify that as a dietary um, uh, priority much earlier on before it ever becomes an actual problem. Yeah, that's fantastic to be able to get those early flags for, for those key micronutrients that are crucial for recovery, crucial for performance. Um, are there certain little strategies you can share around, let's say, perhaps vitamin D? Is it more supplemental, more sun exposure? Yeah. So it's funny, right? Cause we work a lot with soccer. So sun exposure doesn't seem to be, you know, we can only have so much of that as it is and they're outdoors a lot, but once the fall and winter starts to hit and they're later in the season, they're covered up a lot more. So, uh, plus you don't have quite the same degree of sunlight and things. So, you know, that has been more on the supplement side, um, being almost prophylactic in the approach, anticipating the changes that we see. In terms of the iron, um, there's an, there were a number of girls that wound up uh, needing iron supplementation uh, to stem the tide because it was dropping. And, and to tell you the truth, what's really interesting for us is um, the, I don't know how familiar you are with the NCAA preseason, but you know with the NCAA and college sports, for a fall sport, their preseason is two weeks, Jeez, which not very long. It's a joke. No, and so what happens is you bring them in, you got all these players that you're trying to mesh, so coaches want to train, 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 train. And I understand why, right? Because they're, they, they feel this pressure to get ready for the season. What's interesting, though, is – and we've got a manuscript that, that's in review right now on this. But we actually saw – funny enough, we're calling it the fit athlete paradox. Um, we actually saw a couple years ago that contrary to popular belief, our more fit athletes had the greatest breakdown in preseason. We're going, what in the world? And we look, and it's because turns out they do more work. So if you look at their training load, because that's one of the reasons they're more fit. And so what they do is they make up for the less fit players. So now you've got this condensed two-week preseason. They come out of it. Their biomarkers from the, from the standpoint of, of muscle breakdown, catabolic status, um, muscle repair, like you're seeing all these things not going in the right direction. And what was interesting is then the following year after we had recognized that, the coaches were much more cognizant about the training load in the more fit players and had the less fit players do more work. And what happened is we came out with a much more even spread in what we saw for those those biomarker changes. 
So I think that, you know, recognizing the intensity of that preseason is pretty critical. And so I think where we started to see even just immediate changes in iron and, and omega threes and things like that was even in preseason. So what we've tried to do is we've tried to start this process much farther out. So while they might not be able to start their official preseason until, you know, August one or whatever, the way their offseason training and approach is shaped up, we really start at July one. You know, so in other words, their mentality shifts as of July one to create more of a six week preseason uh, in order to get ready. And I think we've had pretty good success with that. And we have not broken down to quite the same degree once, you know, but again, you are unfortunately relying on the athlete to take a lot of that on themselves just because of NCAA regulations um, and, and trusting them to do it. That being said, when they want to win bad enough, they take it on. On the stress hormone side of things, if we look at these, you know, you mentioned the biomarkers, where are we at at the moment in terms of, um, you know, the reliability of, of certain biomarkers in terms of whether it's, you know, is that functional overreaching, non-functional overreaching, overtraining? And can you share some of the key biomarkers that you guys are have found to be more valuable? Yeah. And actually, let me start with this to, to put it into context for that. So I think if you look at some of the research data on overreaching and overtraining, you know, there's there's quite a bit of divergence in terms of does this biomarker really correspond to it? You know, are biomarkers useful? And and it's been a, a mixed bag. But I will say this, too. I have a real problem with the current state of the overreaching literature or and what some have actually called overtraining, which I'm sorry, if you bring somebody to the gym for four weeks and you just crank up the volume, that's not necessarily overtraining. Um, and I think one of the things that, that we've hit on that I think is really, really critical in all this if you use the current research uh, basis to, to try to um, formulate some recommendations for this, lab-based studies are incredibly contrived when it comes to overreaching. They, they are. They're, they're highly fallible because you've now taken out a majority of what also contributes to an athlete's stress. It's not just about training volume. You know, it's about sleep. It's about their diet. It's about the travel stress. It's about team dynamics. It's, you know, take your pick. You know, the body's not going to distinguish when you have these higher levels of stress. And so I think that, that going on some of the previous studies where these are two and three and four week studies and they go, oh, wow, the biomarkers didn't really change. You know, I don't I honestly don't put a lot into that in terms of stock because um, that's not even close to a real world example for an athlete especially when you have an athlete who might train 20 plus hours a week, but also goes to classes and also has two flights to catch this weekend for, for, for back-to-back games, you know, things like that. So what we found was, you know, as we started to get a handle on training load, we started to find that training load became pretty consistent across players. Um, we were getting, you know, good data on, you know, number of sprints on accelerations on time spent in different training zones and things like that, but it didn't fully explain the biomarker changes. And all of a sudden we started to layer on some other factors, including sleep quality, more so than quantity quality was a little better predictor. Yep. Well, we start to see some of these things actually start to match up with the biomarkers, but more importantly, the biomarkers started matching up with performance, especially power output. So when we start to look at it, you know, there's a number that we rely maybe a little more heavily on than others and others that what we're doing in our research, though, is we're trying to identify where we can start to put these into buckets. So rather than looking at sort of an isolated uh, biomarker here and there or whatever, given that you do have individual differences, we are trying to cluster these in a way that gives you sort almost more of a heat map in terms of changes yep. and, and what we're seeing. But certainly cortisol, and what's interesting is we're finding more utility in free cortisol than total cortisol, uh, uh, matching up to some of the performance markers. Same thing with testosterone, that we've seen it both with total and free there. Um, 
we actually had some interesting results this year with IGF-1 and growth hormone and the relationship to certain uh, uh, power outputs and body composition as well, but also strength, Interesting, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, that, would, that, would, that was a little surprising in terms of how, how strongly they were related. Um, but then when we start to look at things like iron, omega-3-6 ratios, uh, vitamin D, ferritin, um, you know, those all become uh, relatively important for us. We look at creatine kinase. While I know it's a surrogate for muscle breakdown, some of the data on its utility even compared to MRI is actually pretty good. But what we try to do is we standardize when we do our blood draws. So, for example, uh, with the women's team, we'll do them roughly 18 hours post post match. So we've got they normally play either a Friday, Sunday or a Thursday, Sunday schedule in season. And so then Monday morning, we will do resting blood draws. And we do that once a month because everybody always says, how do you control for menstrual cycle? And you're like, you, you, well, you don't. First of all, it's a female athlete and you're not going to control for it. But what we do is we account for it. And so we try to actually make these draws every 28 days um, so that it corresponds to what the normal cycle would be so that the fluctuations we're seeing are a little more likely real world and, and, and linked with the menstrual cycle. Um, but we've taken the same approach with the guys as well, you know, every 28 days, 18 to 20 hours after a game um, and looking at it that way, because then what we start to track are recovery properties as well. Uh, we've integrated IL-6 into some of what we're doing. We do see changes in that over the course of a season. And I think that one of the things that surprised us that has been so remarkably consistent in terms of change and it corresponds to heaviest training loads is T3. Um, so even with thyroid hormone, or, yeah, we, we were starting to see some of these things that that took us a bit by surprise um, in terms of how consistently they do match up to periods of, of really jacked up load uh, more than anything else. But I, I'd say, you know, cortisol, uh, the catecholamines, we found some good predictive ability with those over the last two seasons. Um, you know, those those we tend to rely fairly heavily on. Uh, but it's not like we're not looking at other things as well and trying to decide um, what might be moving the needle and what might not be uh, to try to filter through noise um, and come up with more of the meaningful stuff. But certainly, you know, we've probably got eight to 12 that we heavily rely on and another 14 or 15 that we use when we start looking at immune system and things like that. Yeah, I think. You know, I when I I got to a point where you know I experienced burnout uh, as a coach, and what I did, the mistake I made was that I built a life around coaching. Um, and what does that look like? Well, it looks like this: I, I was always working. Um, I didn't surf. I didn't do. You know, I didn't bow hunt. I didn't do jujitsu. I I didn't do the things I loved because I didn't have time, and that was always my excuse is I just don't have time. So I built this great coaching practice and kind of a sidebar was my life. And that led to a massive burnout. And once I got to that burnout, I realized I could not, I couldn't go back to coaching the same way that I was coaching. I, something had to change. And uh, I resigned from the position I had and I had little money. And so I bought a ticket to Bali and essentially surfed every day in Bali. The whole point being I wanted to expand my mental space, right? Reduce load. I didn't have any load. I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have a job. Um, living in very meager conditions, having 
a meal or two a day. So I wasn't worried about anything. And that what that created was nothing but this expansive space in my brain to think about what the next step looked like. And I started first with thinking, where do I want to live? And what does that look like every day? And I put down some things on a piece of paper and I realized I was actually living where I wanted to live, which is Fort Lauderdale. Uh, it afforded me the environment to pursue the things I wanted to, which is really surfing. And then what, what coaching would look like. And I realized I did not want to go and work at a facility, nor did I want to go back to work for a team where I would lose who and what I was, which is what happened before. And I realized I probably looked more like consulting and some coaching. And that's exactly what I sort of kind of developed. And from, from those ashes um, is what Carvel Hall Performance uh, rose out of, is understanding that I needed to do something different. And what I did was I built a coaching practice around a life. And it's completely opposite of what I was doing. And that included uh, surfing on most days when the swells were in. Uh, it included doing jiu-jitsu and pursuing um, higher levels, not to reach higher levels or higher belt, but the knowledge that came from each step in the process. And, and then coach, but coach the way I wanted to, when I wanted to, and I realized that uh, it was going to be a peaks and valley type of years. Sometime during the year, I would be working 60-hour days and seven days a week, and I was okay with that. I allowed for that. And some parts of the year, um, I could surf a lot. I could go on bow hunting trips. I could do jiu-jitsu twice a day and coach minimally. And sort of that's what I built it. And so the going back to nature for me is <clears throat> it's, it's, it's a must for me personally in my life. It just creates space for me to be able to think and it reduces load, not just mental, but physiological load. Um, there's, there's a reason the Japanese have forest bathing, right? It's, it's a very big part of their philosophy. And you'll see it in hospitals now where they have, they have these rooms where the walls are covered with bamboo or forest pictures. And they'll have these chairs where you can kind of block out light and just sit back and just enjoy that, that concept of recovery, right? Mind, body, soul. And so that's what, to me, what, what surfing does is it, when I'm out there, I'm not thinking about coaching or bills or what's the next thing to do. I'm just looking for the next wave and the next wave after that one and the next wave after that one. And that has a way of clearing your brain that allows in this expansive space to happen where there's nothing but possibilities, nothing but possibilities in life, nothing but possibilities in coaching. And, um, you know, I built the kind of life that I wanted to live. Um, it, it happened accidentally after a burnout. It wasn't that I planned it that way. I just, I knew I couldn't go back to what I was doing. Um, and I, I've been asked a couple of times, you know, would you go back to team sports and working in that environment? And that's a good, that's a very good question. And that would have to be, um, it would have to be a win-win situation for me. The culture would have to be important. The money would not be important, Mark. It would be, um, who am I working with? Is it a culture of guys that really want to take it to the next level with these athletes and, and make them the best that they can? Um, 
money aside. I could care less about the money. But it would have to be the right situation, the right environment. And I'd have to be able to surf. Uh, that's just something that's important for me. Uh, I, I don't want to go back to that point where I don't remember the last time I, I surfed. Um, I have probably 20, 20 boards in my garage now, all used, all used in every single part of the world. And I've been able to coach during that time. So the value of being able to go back to nature with just the mind, the body is I keep preaching it, not just to other athletes, but really to coaches. And when I mentor somebody is that's really important is what are you doing for you? Uh, how do you, how do you disconnect? And don't tell me go to the gym because that's not it. Everybody thinks, well, you know, I, I, right. I disconnect by going to the gym. It's like, well, you work in the gym. That's, that doesn't work. And how's that working for you? And the answer is not very well. So the importance of, you know, picking up a hobby, whatever that is, is it music? Is it archery? Uh, Do you want to go? I I push a lot of guys into jujitsu because there's such a great learning environment and humbleness that the mat teaches you, which is the same humbleness that I learned from the ocean. You You turn your back on a wave and you're going to get crushed. Uh, if you, if you think in terms of someone's size, when you get on a mat, you're going to get choked out. And so those things teach the humbleness that comes with, uh, and has, has improved my coaching, you know, exponentially. And it's, it's all sort of kind of a back to nature approach with coaching. And, and you'll have some guys hearing this that, you know, do work 50 or 60 hours a week and can't even think of getting lunch, let alone putting in time for a hobby and stuff. And I'm not saying they're doing it wrong. I just think there's a better way. Yeah. I think it's a great, um, you know, a great lesson, a great tip, a great insight for people who are, you know, the stats around even doctors, family physicians, you know, 50% wouldn't even recommend the profession to their, to their friends or, or family. Uh, you know, burnout's high you Correct. trainers, as you mentioned, getting up first thing in the morning, not home till late. And of course, these people love their their professions. Even parents, obviously, as you get young kids, and all of a sudden there's not enough sleep. There's you don't get to see your friends. So I think that's that idea that you mentioned there of kind of really focusing on on what you want and building your life around it. I think is a great uh, place for people to start. And do you think trainers and clinicians or practitioners can folks do that right when they're even when they're younger practitioners, or is that something that comes as you gain experience and have the leverage? I think I think it's easier, obviously, if you're a graduate from college or a single guy and you live in an apartment, right? The world is your oyster. You can do anything you want. For sure. Uh, w- once you get married and once you start having kids, life changes and you don't necessarily control your life anymore. So if, you, if you're interested in grinding, if you know, that's what you want to do as a coach and you, you know, more power to you, what I'm saying is that at some point you're going to be me. Uh, if I told you, Mark, in the last i probably say last three years, how many coaches have reached out to me and sort of secretly had a conversation about burnout and where they were and how unhappy they were? You wouldn't believe me. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. Um, and that tells me that there's something wrong. Right? Um, we're, we're enamored with this word beast mode and grinding. And I'm the guy who was at the end of that, and I can tell you it's not good. Um, I had, you know, I, I didn't stop. Uh, I knew it was a point where I was completely burnt, but I didn't stop until I had physiological changes, and they weren't good changes. And there are many changes 
that in many ways I still have today and I've not been able to overcome. It seemed like I changed my physiology to a point. I'm fairly recovered. I'd say 98%, but there's that 2% I could never recover from that I did some damage. Um, and that was because I was a grinder. And that's because that's, I wanted to attain that next level. I wanted to have a team polo that had an, an NFL emblem on it. And that's how I marked success. And at the end, when I realized that that really wasn't what it was, I started to realize that, you know, that's, that's not what I want. And that's not what the profession is. It's, we, we somehow glorify grinding. That's, you know, if you're not grinding, you're, you're not real. Like you don't represent the brand. And uh, I'm here to tell you that that's not necessarily the truth. And that will lead to that point where you're going to make a phone call to somebody and say, hey, man, I'm, I'm unhappy. Uh, I love to coach. I just I don't like to coach the way I'm coaching right now. Like I don't see my kids. I can't put them to bed. I, I don't do homework. It's you know my wife's the one that does that. And weekend games, you know I'm away. Uh, I can't coach my kid. And all those things are load, right? We go back to that concept of those things outside the weight room that create load. And um, I think we have a lot of loaded coaches in the profession. Um, and not necessarily good load is they're overworked, they're underpaid. That seems to be the two caveats that you'll you'll see in strength and conditioning is that people that are completely overworked. I'm not saying they don't like their job. I'm saying that they don't love their job. I'm just saying that sometimes it's it really doesn't lead to a lot of good things. I I can only tell you two people, uh, and this is this will be my 27th year in coaching that I know retired as a strength conditioning coach, too. Uh, I've known thousands. That's a problem, right? There's, there's something that we're, we're missing something there. Yeah, it's really insightful. And of course, um, you know, in, in your recent book, you talk about how many academics, and obviously I see this a lot, particularly in nutritional science, there's a bias towards the sequence of sort of analyze, think, and then change to solve problems. Um, thinking that people could just analyze the data, you know, think about the most correct strategy, then they could make the right changes. And of course, you know, as you point out, that's not really how the brain operates. It's more of a see, feel, change is perhaps a better method for achieving that outcome. Can you explain that a little more to listeners? Well, I think that, I mean, if you, you, you don't have to think long and hard to realize that logic changes nobody. Because if logic changed human beings, I mean, who would smoke? Who wouldn't exercise? Who would need healthy? Logically, we all know that's the route to go. But that's not how people change, of course. Emotion and imagination change people. And um, the emotion is very much the fast track to the brain. And if you think of the people in this world who most want to influence you, we call them advertisers, uh, they only speak one language to you. They speak imagery because it's much more powerful. It's a much fuller language. It's an older language. I was speaking to young basketball coaches today here in Montreal, and, and I said to them, you know, imagery is the language of performance in the sense that people can't do things they can't imagine, and that despite the fact that you may have grown up French or English, that wasn't your first language. Your first language was imagery. And it's a very old language, and as I said, the people who most want to influence you don't pick the second most powerful way to communicate with you. Almost always, it's with imagery, and imagery carries with it emotion. You know, if you're alone late at night in a house you don't feel comfortable in, 
the minute you start to imagine things that might happen, your whole physiology starts to change. As far as your body is concerned, the only reality is the imagined reality. And that's true of an advertiser trying to get you to imagine yourself driving this automobile. And it's also true in the fear we generate for ourselves in that house we don't want to be in with images of things that have never happened to us, but nevertheless create the physiologies if we're in danger. Yeah, so, so very true. And, you know, of course, in your most recent book, Thriving in a 24-7 World, um, you talk about the value of pressure. And, of course, pressure impacts emotion a lot. I mean, people can drive anxiety, it can drive low mood, it can drive higher performance. So you use a great metaphor about, you know, basketballs inflated versus deflated basketballs. Could you uh, share that as well? Well, I mean, that was, a, that was a guy in a workshop in Houston. I was working with Potash Corporation down there. And he came up to me at the end of the day and said that <clears throat> he was working with a young man from a disadvantaged background who had lost his father and his mom was working two jobs and he was always talking about the pressure and the kid was trying to, uh, he was a good basketball player, trying to make it, get a scholarship in basketball. And he said, generally when I talk to this young man, I, I meet him out in my driveway and we shoot hoops and just chat. And he said, one day, uh, he said, I bought a new basketball. And I bounced it over to him and said, uh, how do you like that ball? And he said, oh, that's a pretty good ball. That'll work. And uh, then I, he said, I'd taken a pen knife and punched a hole in the old ball that we used to use. And I plopped it over to him. And, and he, said, he said, that's not going to work. <laughs> and I said to him, no. You know, no pressure, no bounce. It's the pressure that gives the basketballs bounce. And of course, it's the pressure that gives us our bounce. You know, uh, Kelly McGonigal, who's probably done more research in the last 10 years in stress than anyone else I know of, at least, out of Stanford, says that, you know, when people are under stress, it means two things. It means they think they can make a difference and that they care. And, and I think those are important things to remember when we're under a little stress. Uh, Mike Babcock, our Olympic hockey coach, talks about pre pressure being a privilege. He was speaking to uh, <clears throat> the World Junior team I was working with a few years ago, World Junior Hockey team. And uh, they were talking about the pressure of playing in Canada, et cetera, which is immense. Uh, World Juniors will draw twice the television audience of a Stanley Cup final, or an Olympic Games, for that matter. And, uh, and, uh, and he turned to them finally, and he said, yeah, but 100% of the players not in this room don't have any pressure. <laughs> in other words, the only reason you got the pressure is because you got a chance. Pressure is a privilege. It does mean you have a chance. That's that's phenomenal. Um, such a great way of looking at things. And of course, in your book, you talk about energy management. You know, what is energy management, and why is it important? Well, boy, that's a that, that's a long. It, it's a question that requires a fairly long answer. But let me try to abbreviate it. I think as we get busier and busier, we try to solve that problem by reallocating time, and. We have such a limited amount of time. We have 24 hours in a day, and that hasn't changed recently. <clears throat> and if you fail to notice the constant in that equation, the 24 hours, uh, you miss the point. Because you see, we think that if we manage our time well, the pressure will go away. And to a small degree, that's the case. You, you know, good time management skills are, are valuable. But at a certain point, that's not where you're going to get most of your gains. Because the truth is, time is the problem. You see, it's time and the shortage of it that makes us forfeit a good night's sleep uh, in order to get something done that if we waited and did it in the morning, we could do it in a tenth of the time. 
it's 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 not having the time to spend it with the people we want to spend it with, the people we love most that puts pressure on it. It's deadlines, it's all these things. And when we start to think of ourselves as someone who has to learn to manage energy, not time, we start to find all kinds of time. For example, our arousal level is critical. Like when our arousal level goes too high, what happens our attentional focus narrows. And it's not something you have any choice over. It's just the way it is. Uh, you've been in situations, for example, where, excuse me, <clears throat> you've been in situations, for example, where someone has really upset you. And you leave the situation, and five minutes out of the room, you're saying things like this. When she said that, why didn't I say this? And I should have said this and this and this. Well, if you can think of it five minutes later, how could you couldn't think of it right in front of her? Well, your arousal level got too high, your attentional focus narrowed, you missed the, missed the information. It's what we call choking in sport. Attentional focus too narrow, missing relevant information. The fact of the matter is, if you used a breathing technique in the middle of a conversation with her, you would have been able to handle it right there. Now it's going to rob time, you're going to think about it, you're going to talk to other people about it, and it's just going to constantly uh, steal time from you. Uh, we borrow time from sleep, as I mentioned, all the time. We never pay it back. We never pay it back. And there's all kinds of things that just drain our energy and take up time. Multitasking, being negative with ourselves. Um, what I call ceaseless striving. In other words, trying to change the impossible. You and I having a conversation about how upset we are about the fact that they've made this decision and the decision's over, it's done, it's complete. Any conversation that we are having at that point doesn't take us anywhere. It's what Ben Zandler, the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, once called the conversation of no possibilities. <laughs> and again, it eats up time. But the problem is I haven't managed my energy. I haven't looked at what I can control, looked what I can't, learned to let go, started to acquire some of the skills that allow me to get better at managing my energy and at my performance. You talk about some tools in your book to help with energy management and this idea of the skill of reframing. Can you sort of describe that for folks and maybe give an example of a potential exercise? I'll describe by way of a story. So I was at the World Figure Skating Champs in Paris, France in 1989, and I was out of a rink uh, that the competition was being held in, the main rink, and there was a, a rink right beside it, something we're familiar with here in Canada. And, uh, and I was working with the pairs. And right next door, uh, Kurt Browning uh, had to uh, skate his figures. At that point, they had figures in figure skating, where you would go into the arena, it was dead silence, and you had to trace an eight or a, whatever you were tracing, and, and they marked it, you see. And, uh, and has since left figure skating, but it was part of every competition, uh, which has been... And, and, and the judges could really control that part of it. So uh, more than a few skaters got screwed by their marks. And, and I mean, think of Brian Orson. He won the short program and he won the long program in Sarajevo Olympics, and he finished second. That's incredible. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah. Well, because they screwed him in the figures, yeah. you know? So, so uh, anyway, I'm back to the story. So, so Kurt comes out, and um, normally when you skated figures, it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. That's where you practice them in your own rink. And uh, it was always dead silence and things. But of course, at a world championship, all of a sudden, there's 
100 photographers with cameras and things like this. And so I said to Kurt, how'd it go? And he said, oh, he said, uh, not good at first. He said, I pushed off, and all of a sudden, all I heard was click, click, power bar, power, power winder, power winder. And, and, and I said, what did you do? He said, I said to myself, well, if this many people are taking pictures of my figures, I must skate really good figures. <laughs> and that's an ultimate reframing. You know, like you look at the situation, which you may or may not like, and you choose the frame you want to put around it. You know, if you're listening to this, if you think of any painting or picture you have in your house, and the minute you change the frame, you take off the blue frame and you put up a black frame, different information gets highlighted in that picture. You start to see the blacks if the frame is back. If you put up a green frame, you'll start to see the greens. Uh, each frame highlights different information in the picture, but you know what? The picture never changes. You know, we're still, uh, the deadline has changed for the project. Uh, my, my oldest daughter got home late last night and I got to speak to her about it. Like, the situation hasn't changed, but you can find a frame that fits. You know, uh, I remember a woman when I was going through my cancer treatment program 10 years ago, I met in the waiting room and, and uh, she, we used to see each other on a fairly regular basis and one day I was talking to her and, and she said, um, you know what my cancer has taught me? And I said, I, I didn't obviously. And she said, my, my cancer has taught me that normal optimism will not do. I'm not in a normal game, so being normally optimistic is not very helpful. I said, what does that mean to you? She said, I had to upgrade my ability at being optimistic to deal with what I was going through. And so things I used to take for granted, now I make a big deal out of them. In other words, I changed the frame. You know, life chooses the information, but you choose the frames. Um, you know, uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, who wrote Man's Search, Search for Meaning, talked about this when he talked about how in the concentration camps, you know, they could take away everything from you but how you chose to look at things that that is something we always have within our own control. Even in horrible situations, we do have some control over how we choose to look at something. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full episodes of the clips you heard in today's episode, head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com, go to the podcast tab, season seven, and you'll have access there to those links. Also, stay tuned for our final episode of Season 7, another two-hour highlight reel from more of the incredible world-class experts who've been on the podcast over the last seven years. Appreciate you taking the time and listening. Please subscribe and leave us a review if you enjoyed the content. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.